Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey everyone, welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, currently rainy, rainy, humid in New York, Paul. But at the point of this recording right now, watching the Wimbledon final, been exciting Wimbledon. Are you a tennis guy? I'm a Grand Slam guy. I like U.S. Open, you know, because it's in Queens and we get all amped for it. And I think the city, like all the tennis fans congregate. But I wouldn't say tennis is in my top five. Okay. Yeah, I grew up watching like all the Grand Slams. I just finished the Agassi book, which came out a while ago, but I just recently listened to it. So now I'm in this big tennis mode. But I do enjoy watching Wimbledon and I do enjoy watching the U.S. Open. Do you play? No, I don't play. It's a great sport. Like, it's really, really hard. It is very hard. I played as a kid, but I really love watching people play tennis. I love watching Wimbledon. I love watching the U.S. Open. It's exciting. It's like one of those things. Like It's like the World Cup. Like I get a little bummed out when it's over. It's like something to root for. The whole world comes together over it. My dad is watching it in Pakistan. I'm messaging people overseas. So it's, it's a nice thing to connect on. I saw Wimbledon had a... They reprimanded people for popping bottles in the middle of someone's <laughs> serve. So yeah. like, hey, if, technically, I guess you're not even supposed to bring in corked bottles um, yeah. maybe because of that. Well, but, it's such a difference it's, of culture between Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. I feel like the U.S. Open is more of a party and like everyone's just boozing and getting drunk. Wimbledon's a bit more proper. Sure, sure, sure. Well, maybe that's like a microcosm of things. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, let's see. I mean, the rising star versus the goat. So Yeah, like, I'm going for the rising star. So we'll, we'll see who, who turns out. Oh, are yeah, you? Okay. Yeah. But speaking of winning, like Tom Cruise continues to win at the box office. Mission Impossible 7, Dead Reckoning Part 1 came out last week saying it's going to do five-day open 80 million, which is pretty good numbers for it. I went and saw it. It's not anything to really write home about. I mean, it is good. It's not, it's not blockbuster numbers. Give it, it's a strong franchise, really highly rated, 96 on Rotten Tomatoes, five-day extended opening weekend. 80 million is lower than they were projecting. Were they projecting 100, right? I think 90 to 110. 110 would be phenomenal, and 90 was the low end of the optimistic range. I went and saw it Wednesday night, opening night. Just didn't have anything going on that night. Went and watched it with a buddy. 
movie-wise, reliable. Was it packed? I wouldn't say it was packed, but I went to like a really massive theater in Union Square at the Regal Union Square, and it was a huge theater. It was pretty busy, I would say, for a Wednesday night, Wednesday opener. I'll say this. It is a reliable franchise. You know what you're going to get. You're going to get great action. You're going to get some funny scenes, and you're just going to watch Tom Cruise defy death for like the 80th time. Story-wise, it was okay, but that's not why you go to a Mission Impossible movie. You go for, like, the action, the stunts, man. This guy's stunts are just insane. He just continues to just do crazy stuff. And not much CGI, right? So it's it's really fun to watch and highly recommended if you want, like, a popcorn action flick. I would be down to see it. Speaking of, I think, what a lot of people are anticipating is July 21st, we got one of the biggest head-to-head movie showdowns in a while. We've got Greta Gerwig's Barbie and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. And this thing has taken on its own like meme on the internet. Who is watching what? Could you watch both movies in the same day? I mean, it, it is kind of or fun. Or the same weekend. Same weekend. Someone was making a joke like they wake up, you go and watch uh, Barbie in the morning, take the day, go to brunch, and then go and watch Oppenheimer in the night or switch those two around. But I think um, it's kind of cool to see this happen. I mean, two movies, two different audiences, two totally different styles of movies. Both have fandom behind it. Greta Gerwig did Lady Bird, Little Women. She's known for making really, really good movies. And and Barbie's got a really massive fan base. And I think it's also Margot Robbie. It's Ryan Gosling. Like, everyone's curious. How is this movie actually? Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell. I'm excited about both. Barbie, for sure. You watch the trailer and you're like, oh, so there's like depth, there's layers yeah, yeah. here. So that'll be exciting. And plus Mattel, there's stories circulating on social media and on the internet that Mattel is poised to launch their own cinematic universe. So they oh, have interesting. 45 films planned based on wow. their, their like popular toy intellectual property. So like Thomas the Tank Engine, Polly Pocket, <laughs> Uh, the magic eight ball. So, I mean, obviously Barbie is their bread and butter. premiere, their Spider-Man, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Their equivalent of Spider-Man. And we'll see if, if Barbie performs and is a hit and like a phenomenal hit, then this will set up Mattel for, for the rest of what they want to do. If it's moderate, I still think Mattel's probably got a bunch of movies that they want to move forward with because, you know, when you have intellectual property, why not? Right. We talked about, could there be a Zelda film, even though yeah. Link doesn't speak? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Super Mario Brothers did great. So sometimes it's really just a matter of like a little bit of a kernel of a fan base and a really good filmmaker. And, and doing it well. Doing yeah, exactly. it well, yeah. And then then think you can catch lightning in a bottle. Yeah, because I think the appeal of this movie is it's a Barbie movie. How good could this be? And I think that it's everyone's curious to see how this plays out. So I'm going to watch both. Well, Margot looks amazing in all the marketing and in the trailer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She does. I mean, I am. I would say Christopher Nolan is my favorite director slash writer. I'm not saying I love every movie because there's some movies I, I don't really feel like I understood. But I go into every movie expecting it to be great. And I am rarely disappointed. I loved Inception, Interstellar, yes. Memento, the trilogy, all the Batman yeah. trilogy. I like Tenet, even though I didn't understand Couldn't it. Couldn't watch it. Couldn't sit through it. Didn't understand what was happening. Well, it's all about entropy, I guess. <laughs> but I didn't understand it either. But it, it's cool. I, I think with Oppenheimer, it's, again, filmed in IMAX. I think it maybe doesn't have the massive like audience that a Barbie has. I mean, 
they're looking at Barbie to track like 100 to 150 million. I know that's a wide range. And Oppenheimer is in that 40 to 60 million dollar range, but it's all Christopher Nolan fans. People that I've just talked to asking, like most people want to see Barbie. Like it's only like Nolan fans. But Oppenheimer has, a, Oppenheimer has a huge cast, right? It's yeah. like uh, it's it's Matt Damon, it's Killian Murphy, it's Robert Downey Jr., Emily Blunt. Great cast. I love all those people. I love Killian Murphy. Yeah, I'm a I'm a uh, forever Peaky Blinders fan. So I haven't seen Downey in anything in a while. So Downey hasn't been in anything that. outside Marvel in a while. Well, he was in that Judge movie, which was pretty good. He was in the Judge movie that I never saw. But Nolan obviously loves Killian Murphy. He has something to do with all three Batman movies. He was in Inception, and this is his first lead in a Nolan film. I'm sure people know this at this point, but he auditioned for the role for Batman. And Christian Bale beat him for it, but he ended up, they, they have these screen tests that went viral, but I think it was because of that screen test that he ended up playing Scarecrow in the first movie. But yeah, like both movies cost He's over. a creepy, he, he's creepy. Yeah. He can he be can creepy. Be. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And both movies were not cheap, you know, over a hundred million dollars to make. That doesn't include marketing. Did you um, mention Florence Pugh? Florence Pugh's in, in Oppenheimer, right? Yeah. 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 Big. And Rami Malek. He's in it too? Yeah. Dang, man. It's like a huge cast. That's yeah. a huge cast. Yeah, that's a huge cast. Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman's also in it? <laughs> Casey Affleck. Wow. That is a stacked cast. Yeah. That is a stacked Josh cast. Hartnett. Josh Hartnett's also in it? <laughs> Ken Branagh. It's like a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of people. And so our main topic this week is the SAG strike. And we're going to talk about at the end of this show. But one thing to note is that the premiere of Oppenheimer was in London when SAG actually went on strike. Mm -hmm. So the deal expired, the extension expired on the 12th. And then I think there was some last minute mediation. And then the actors who were at the premiere got word that the strike was starting. So they left uh, to go, as Christopher Nolan said, to go write their uh, picket signs. Right. And Christopher spoke at a panel in at a screening of the film in New York and he talked about a couple of the critical issues that he thinks the studios need to be accountable for, the most important of which being AI yep. and, and what algorithms can do. But I, I wanted to point out that at the premiere, the strike hit front and center. Let's take a break because we're going to get that in our third segment today. But we'll take a break and we'll come back and talk about the Emmys and then we'll go into all that. Okay, Paul, so Emmy nominations and kind of what you were saying about the strike and we're going to get to it. I feel like the air got sucked out of the room because the Emmys are celebrating TV, but obviously with the strike happening, it seems like it's not as exciting, but Emmys are Emmys, man. And guess who leads the Emmys right now? It's HBO, of course. HBO is like killing it with the nominations. Succession, White Lotus, Last of Us, House of Dragon. Is it uh, HBO slash Max or is it is it Max? I think that it's HBO slash Max. But I think these specifically, Succession, White Lotus, Last of Us, House of Dragon are, are HBO. HBO shows. Apple doing well. 21 nominations for Ted Lasso, of course. Netflix had... Beef, Dahmer, Wednesday nominated. Of course, one of my favorite shows of the year, Who Lose the Bear, nominated as well. And, and I would say it, it all makes sense. These are great shows. I mean, it's been a really, really good year for TV, and it's nice to see people getting their nominations. It has been. But for the strike, the Emmys would air on Fox September 18th. The uh, nominees were announced last week, and now people can debate and vote, and then the award show was, which is more of a celebration, typically would happen mid-September. Right. But due to the strike, 
that's up in the air. Right. I think the rumors are that it may happen in November. That's right. But Fox would prefer to have it happen in January. That's right. Because yep. that's a little bit of a slower television time. And so they probably have, I'm assuming they have rights to air the Emmys, this iteration of it. But you're right. I mean, if the strike is still going on in December or January of 2024, we're going to have a lot bigger problems. And it will seem a little out of touch to be rewarding shows and having a celebration when the actors probably won't even be able to appear and accept what they won. But to break it down, you're right. The streamers did really well in terms of the nominations. HBO had 127 Netflix had 103. Amazon did really well with Amazon and and Freebie combining for 45. And it's interesting because the Emmys had a slightly different procedure this year for the nominations. There was no limit in any category. So people could just nominate whatever they felt was appropriate without a number of slots. And it didn't really change things because the haves got all the nominations, it seems. Right. And HBO had all eight supporting actor nominations and six of the eight supporting actress nominations. Best actor nominations for the cast of Succession. And I don't know who I would give it to. I would probably, only because Logan Roy wasn't even in that much of season four, I think it would have to be Jeremy Strong. You got to give it to Succession just given the show's over and they did such an incredible job. Sorry, just going back to your thing about supporting actor in a drama series. I'm just looking at the list right now. And it's funny because it's like, it's F. Murray, Abraham, Nicholas Braun, Michael Imperioli, Theo James, Matthew McFadden, Alan Ruck, Will Sharp, Alexander Skarsgård. Basically, that is White Lotus, Succession, White Lotus, Succession, <laughs> Succession, White Lotus. There's no one else besides those two shows that got nominated. So that's pretty funny. I would see Matthew McFadden getting it or Nicholas Braun. I think they were both good. I didn't really like their characters, but they no. were great performances. And I sort of like Nicholas Braun less as the show went on. Yeah, he was a little um, little weaselly, I would say. A little too yeah. weaselly for me. But I think Alexander Skarsgård should get it because he just he brought like a, a different energy to the show. But yeah, anyone there deserves it. And White Lo- that season of White Lotus, the second season of White Lotus was phenomenal. I liked it better than the first season. So I'm sure White Lotus will come out with another season, but it's a nice to celebrate succession. I think. Well, White Lotus is, wasn't a miniseries anymore. It wasn't. No, so it no. dominated as a, as a limited series last year. Yes. And now people were like, well, is it really? Because they're doing another season. So now it's going head to head with Succession. And Last of Us. Last of Us, yeah. Was great. I mean, 24 nominations and Pedro Pascal. I mean, he was awesome. He was awesome in, in, it. in the yeah. show. Bella Ramsey was good also. A lot of guest performers on Last of Us. It's interesting because we talk about, and this is a theme throughout Better Call Paul, which is television morphing and it's indicative that Abbott Elementary was the only scripted network show to get a nomination. Right, right. It's all about streaming. Yeah, like it goes back to like, I don't know what show I watch from like a network TV standpoint anymore. It's all streaming. Well, I guess technically they say The Bear is an FX show, but it's only available. It's on, on streaming. Yeah. Yeah. Abbott Elementary is an ABC show, but it's also available on Hulu because of the ABC connection because it's, you know, common control with Disney. I would like to see Better Call Saul win. I'd like to see Bob get something, but I I don't think he can. It's hard to compete. It's a tough one. I think it's going to be with one of the succession guys. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I mean, I think overall, like all of it made sense. All the shows. We'll see what happens 
when it comes to the strike. Why don't we take a break and then come back and we'll break down what's going on right now at the double strike. Okay, Mesh. So as we discussed last week, and as we've been discussing basically for the past two months intermittently, we've got chaos in Hollywood, unions on strike. Now the writers have been on strike for two and a half months, and the actors, SAG, just agreed to join them, forming picket lines, picketing studios and streamers and the offices. And it's really something that no one has seen in the past 60 years, and SAG hasn't striked in 43 years. There hasn't been a combined WGA SAG strike in 60 years. And it really does feel like we're at an inflection point in the business, and both sides are dug in on this. And, you know, we try as much as we can in this show to present both sides, and that doesn't necessarily mean you may lean talent, I may lean studio, although and I think in this issue as a fan, I, I kind of understand and empathize maybe more with talent, but let me just make the studios pitch and then we can go down through the list of open issues. But the studios are saying, hey, streaming isn't profitable yet. We've been putting a lot of resources into it, but the only streaming service that's actually profitable is Netflix. Others are losing billions a year, Mm -hmm. like Peacock. Paramount Plus hasn't even said when they expect to be profitable. Disney said their streaming services will be profitable in 2024. Warner Brothers says maybe at the end of this year, they'll be profitable with Max. And so we don't know. And so in, in, in light of that, they are understandably concerned about costs spiraling because they're trying to rein it in. They're trying to make less content. And on top of that, we're in an equities market where you know there has been a recent upswing in a lot of stock prices. And this year has been great for stocks. But Stocks like Paramount and Disney are still down pretty far from their peaks in 2021. I think Paramount might be down 80%. Disney's down 55%. So there's also this existential crisis of the transforming business model, the fact that people don't watch TV the way they used to, the fact that theatrical has not recovered from the pandemic, and we don't know when it will, is hurting the revenue line item, which is causing the studios to want to tighten their purse strings and dig in even further when they're in negotiation with talent. So Bob Iger was interviewed over this, and and I think he does a good job in terms of like representing the business case. And so Bob Iger said, this is the worst time in the world to add to that disruption. And the disruption he's talking about is what you just mentioned around cost cutting and streaming, et cetera, like the business environment is terrible. And then he said, adding that he respects their right and their desire to be compensated fairly, but also that the unions have to be realistic about the business environment and what this business can deliver and that the strike will cause huge collateral damage. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's. A, I don't know if he should have said that. I'm not saying he's necessarily wrong because what he's doing is he's making himself a target yeah. for like Fran Drescher yeah, and everyone yeah, at yeah. the opposition because they're like, hey, you came out of retirement. You've made, you're making 27 million a year. You've made God knows how many hundreds of millions over your 15 years as Disney CEO. And granted, he's created a lot of shareholder value. Well, also running like a multi-billion dollar business. Sure, sure, sure. But it's just like you make yourself a lightning rod when you go out and say, totally, hey, totally. but the average actor is barely breaking even. I mean, SAG is 160,000 yep. members and 
you know, we think about the people we just mentioned who are in Oppenheimer and or yeah, Oppenheimer. Like the 1%. And so, yeah, Downey is doing fine, Strike or Not. Christopher Nolan is going to do fine, Strike or Not, although he's he's a writer slash director and DGA does not, did not strike. They accepted their deal. But the people that put butts in seats are going to be doing fine. It's the it's everyone else. vast majority of others yeah. who are making less than six figures, sorry, like $50,000, $60,000 a year, maybe 70, who work five, 10 days a year, maybe 15 or 20, who barely make ends meet. And those are the people that don't want to become cannon fodder for these studios. Totally. And, and the other thing I'd say, just to play devil's advocate, when studios were making a ton of money, when streamers were stocks were in the sky, they still yeah, weren't necessarily yeah, exactly. sharing the wealth, right? That would have been the right time to strike, though, from like a from a leverage standpoint. Three years ago, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because this goes back to the conversation. It is not the one percent of actors that we hear about that are making, you know, every every so like a couple million to like twenty million dollar film. You know, my cousin is a is a working actor, and he's had really like been building his resume up, had some small roles here and there, like in Stranger Things and a few other shows. And I can't mention the movie because he's not allowed to talk about it. So, but he did tell me, you know, he's like got this movie. It's a big movie. It's coming out. He's like number eight on the cast list. He was like getting very excited. It was going to be his first like red carpet event. Hired a publicist and. He wants to promote this movie because for him, it presents a platform to get more roles and like get that momentum and he's been, going. He's been grinding for he's a while, been, He's right? been grinding, yeah, he's been grinding for a while. And like, we've been talking about this in, in the family for a while. And it sucks because he can't promote the movie now. He can't go to the red carpet. He can't leverage that platform to like, can, you know, help himself get more and more roles and, you know, negotiate a higher salary. And it's a real bummer because for him, yes, the strike, essentially protects him or potentially ups his. Well, that's the goal, right? The goal, goal, but it's hurting him right now because this work is important. These events are important. The promotion of a movie is important for his career. So it's it's a little bit of like a double-edged sword. It is, but we have to respect the fact that 98% of SAG actors voted to authorize the strike. Right. Knowing that there are going to be people like, I'm sure Margot Robbie would love to promote yes. Barbie. I'm sure- People would love to promote their projects that are coming out right now. And I'm sure, you know, studios would love to keep things in production. But that's the point of the strike is like you have to inflict some pain yes. to feel, to be felt and to be heard at the negotiating table. And there's a lot of issues. We talked about it in episode 216. We talked about it a little, but this time... Because there was a media blackout, we haven't really gotten into it. But the AMPTP did release their best and final. And so there is a summary of the open issues. And as Bob Iger said, they think that the demands are unrealistic. And the AMPTP has said, hey, we offered what the directors agreed to in terms of increase in minimum compensation of five, four, and four percent per year, more generous residuals, more generous pension, health, and welfare. These are all things that the Directors Guild accepted and the Actors Guild is not taking it. And what they'd like to do is arrive at some reasonable, they'll call it whatever they agree to, generous. But there are some, I think, threshold issues that are in play here, meaning things that arguably could have, like you said, three years ago, been addressed or 
maybe they were attempted to be addressed and, you know, you, you can't win every point in a negotiation. So they just said, we'll fight about this another day. But streaming data sharing and, and participating right. in the success of a streaming show, AI, which probably three years ago wasn't something that anyone was really all that concerned about unless they were like sci-fi aware or super paranoid. People didn't think that sure. AI was going to like take sure. away their labor market, although that's a much more stronger potential risk now. Things like residuals on streaming. Those are all issues that the actors don't want to bend on. And it doesn't sound like the studios really want to bend either. I mean, specifically on those issues, they've said, hey, um, we can't gauge success in streaming. There's just no way. It's not like box office where you can see ticket sales and it's not like Nielsen rated linear television. So... There's just no way to do that, and it's the business model, but we'll pay you a little bit more in the minimums, and we'll increase the pension, health, and welfare. SAG is asking for a flat-out 2% of all revenue generated from streaming shows. So if an actor's on a show, yeah, they want, in addition to the minimum, they want 2% of the revenue to be pulled into a fund that the actors in the show can then participate in. Studios are saying, we don't know how to value. We don't know how to calculate that 2%. Well, to me, it's like, it makes sense what what they're asking for. I mean, times are changing. Systems change. You need to move with the times and adapt. And that also means on how the money is shared. Obviously, on the business side, the streamers are invested so much into this business that potentially is not as profitable as they think they are. And like any additional cost just eats into that. And but like if I take the business argument, I can understand from like, okay, you're a public company, you have shareholders, you need to increase revenue, you need to increase profit margins. That's just how the, the the system works. And then from the actor standpoint, it's like, yeah, pay us more. Totally agree. I agree. Like essentially I can see both sides. And and I think timing wise, it was interesting to pick the week right before you have two of the biggest movies of the summer coming out. Well, that's why they probably extended from June 30th to July 12th. Or maybe they really were trying to get the deal done and they were down to the last handful of issues. Another one, so minimum compensation is consider, is it's called scale. And so that's like, depending on the budget threshold, whether it's standard or high budget or low or ultra low or student film or whatever, or based on the um, the size of the project, there are different tiers and those tiers correspond to the minimum you can pay someone for a day or for a week or for a show. And SAG wants an 11% increase in the first year and 4% increases in each year after that to keep up with inflation. Yeah. And the AMPTP offered 5 4 and 3.5%. Yeah. So they seem pretty far apart on that first year, but yeah. in the out years, they'd be, they're close. And right now, the minimum is like for high budget is depending on what kind of performer you are between three and four high threes and low four thousands per week, you know, 11% increase would get them to mid fours to low fives. And another big one is this foreign streaming residuals. SAG wants a 230% increase when residuals are streamed in countries other than where they were produced. They want a bigger piece of that revenue. And I understand this. I mean, how much, Korean content do we see on Netflix? Similarly, it worked the other way around. Like if you are making a show in the US and you pay people whatever you pay them, $5,000 a week, and then you're re-airing that show on your streaming platform in 150 other countries, maybe they should get some of that money. The AMPTP did offer a 76% increase, but SAG seems like they want triple that. I'm assuming they're gonna. there has to be some like wiggle room 
that they're going to end well, up Well, the DGA accepted 76%, okay. which is kind of... Okay. I, I, I wonder, too, though, if, like... I mean, I don't know how this works, but like we're again going back to the one percent of actors that make a boatload of money on films. Is there a world where they get together and say, "Hey, we'll lower our pay threshold"? I mean, these are businesses at the end of the day to essentially like spread that or let it trickle down, and you have more cash. Because I mean, I wonder if that well, is an option. Here's the that's thing: too, that I mean, seems too tough to do because they're looking at it like well ted sarandos is making 40 million and bob Iger is making 25 plus his equity and so why should an actor reduce his or her comp just because they've been at it for 25 years and they make a big yeah, yeah, fee yeah, yeah, now yeah. so that the ceos can report higher profit and get a bigger bonus so it's all about how the pie is divided yeah and yeah streaming services haven't been profitable part of that is the content spend but part of it is like Expenses also include salary, yeah, right? Yeah. And and bonuses and compensation. So yeah, yeah, you know, it's like there are some people that are taking home big checks, even even though the platforms aren't necessarily profitable. Let me rephrase that. Instead of the actors getting together, yes, maybe it's more the executives at the companies who you know it's a little tone deaf to be getting these massive bonuses and payouts when you have all this stuff going on and you're talking about how much money you're losing on these platforms. Now, granted, I understand that it takes like a special person to run a company like that and you want the best talent to be running something like that and you need to pay them because they could potentially go elsewhere. Messaging and narr narrative matters. For those who may not be aware, when you're in the studio war room, when you're trying to figure out whether to make a project or not, you're trying to make it for as little money as possible. Right. So right. you're obviously, you know, your lead handful of stars, they're not making the minimum because you need them and it's in the budget. But like anywhere where you can cut corners or save money that's considered fungible, like background actors or something, I mean, you're going to want that to be as low as possible. Yeah. So that's why the people who are just struggling to make it are getting squeezed the hardest. It's not like... Stars are going to be stars. They're going to do fine. But it's the people on the fringes that, you know, the studios want to make as inexpensive as possible. Right. And this is where one topic, which is AI, comes in. Yeah. Right. So currently it's unclear whether the agreement covers AI. But one interpretation is that you could scan someone's likeness, pay them, pay a background actor for a day, scan them, and then use that what you capture forever in connection with the project. Right. And so what SAG is saying is some background performer comes in, they get paid $187, and then you you can use their likeness forever. And that, they think, is not okay. And I think when you, sure, right? Sounds like to me that that would be too much. But you think about people who aren't in the union, that's something that they could agree to right now. And is the studio going to say, hey, every time we want to reuse you, we have to come back and negotiate a new deal and pay you more money because I could see why that is unworkable. So I see both sides. I mean, you certainly don't want to be giving up your likeness forever unless you're fairly compensated for it. But as a studio, part of these interconnected universes and these films that appear and like reappear and you're, you know, especially something like the MCU it's like you want to have stock footage that you can go to and and reuse or, or repurpose. And like it's wild because if a studio gets the green light and says, 
okay, we're going to be able to, if we scan all these background actors, we can reuse them forever. I'm sh- of course they're going to do that, yes. right? Because it's a way to keep their costs down. Well, I'm going back to the cost thing, and, and I'm excited to get more into the AI stuff because I think it's it's going to be interesting. But I have a friend who just joined a, a company that is essentially an AI studio. And the business case there is that costs need to be lowered. You can leverage AI. Now, from like an actor standpoint, I understand why that could be upsetting. And we'll, we're going to see all sorts of like changes over the next few years. Like, even if you think about like CGI from like a, uh, I was just reading an article about why is sometimes CGI so bad in these movies? It's, it's just all about cost cutting at the end of the day. They don't want to make it look so great if it's going to cost a lot more money. Part of what, and I'm not involved in this at all, and I should say this, but I do negotiate all the time. I mean, that's what a large part of what I do is negotiate for clients. And sometimes things go down to the wire. Sometimes things go a little bit past the wire and you need to do extensions. And sometimes things fall apart. But to have a dozen to two dozen open issues where there's huge gaps yeah. at this point yeah. seems like this thing could be, could be a while drawn out. And I don't want to be over simplistic about it where someone could say, okay, well, We'll meet you on increasing the minimums. You come our way on the residuals. You, we'll, we'll agree to your p- proposal on AI, and you agree to our proposal on pension, health, and welfare, and we'll meet in the middle. And you win six issues, and we'll win the other six, and we're done. Like, I hope that happens, but I just I don't know if it's going to happen in a week or a month or how long this is going to drag out. And I think a big concern for actors is they don't have the war chest that the studios do. Right. And the studios can go make content overseas if they really have to. I mean, they can make yeah. more Korean shows, more British shows. Didn't think um, about that. That's that's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I guess we'll just we'll keep an eye on things and keep reporting as it um, or and keep discussing it as it goes on. I'm sure it's it's going to be a big part of our show in the coming weeks. Is that we're just going to continue talking about this, but. Um, yeah, I, I think good breakdown on that, Paul. And let's just keep everyone up to date. And uh, hopefully you can all still go watch Barbie and Oppenheimer and escape to the movies. Yeah, if you have friends that are working in the business, reach out, maybe get a coffee, grab a beer with them. It's a really tough time for them right now. All right, folks, that's our show for this week. Make sure you're subscribed to us on the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Tell your friends, write us a review. Follow us on Instagram, TikTok, at Better Call Paul, the podcast. Follow me on Twitter, at Mesh Lakani. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer, Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone.